welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today we have Sensei Amy, Marla, and Craig with us. Craig's in his jumper. We realized the jumper in Scotland is a sweater in the U.S. So we're not going to have that conversation again, Craig, but we understand that. We've got that down. We're talking about the four. Oh, before we talk about the fourth verse, I do want to mention the meetings that I know that go on. Marla, you have, uh, we have the uh, the daily 1 p.m. Eastern. Are they still uh, doing? It's called the dailyrecoverymeeting.com. Daily recovery meeting. We have that link in the. Uh, in the episode notes, we have zoomaameetings.com, which is a 9 p.m. Eastern open AA meeting. I would suggest getting there early. We're bumping 100 now. We've been bumping 100 several nights, and we have 100 locks. So I would suggest getting early to make sure you have a place if you want to come to that meeting because it's starting to push that push the threshold. So it's really good meeting. Lots of good stuff, lots of good people, lots of good recovery. Amy, watch, we have probably out of, gosh, we have a lot of people with 20 and 30 years of sobriety in that meeting. There could be collectively hundreds, years. yeah, at bare minimum hundreds of years, but easy. Yeah, some, some nights, a thousand years of sobriety in that meeting. So come check it out if you're so inclined. Today, we'll be talking about the fourth verse of the Tao Te Ching with Sensei Ellison. Sensei, I know I put in the notes some of the things that you have. I know you have a book coming out. Uh, we do. It's uh, called The Original Frontier. The metaphor is, um, you know, the American frontier spirit and uh, leaving the familiar known territory and entering into unknown map in the territory and all that and uh that buddha entered the original frontier of mind you might say 2500 years ago and it's a frontier that's not geographic it's a frontier that's here wherever we are ready and waiting for us to enter but that's kind of the metaphor for the title and that's coming out now it's been bumped from january to february 15th they had they printed in India and they had some sort of COVID deal and they had to switch it from China or something. It was some kind of production snafu. But uh, they have hard copies. I'm getting I'm getting one soon or several. They they give us complimentary copies as the author. And I've been in discussion with the publisher the last couple of days about the marketing things we'll do between now and when it breaks. And then we have a, a video on Matsuoka Roshi coming out. It may be about the same timing. We're not sure. It's a ninety. It's a it's a long, It's a big video. It's documentary ninety. It's going to be something like ninety minutes. And we think we've just finally kind of uh, summed up the narrative and sort of brought the last transitions into focus. And now we're the the editing team is going to start launching into working with the video. There are some places online, I think, uh, Buddy, you know, you've you've looked at them, I think, where you can go look at teasers on right. that. And the book, The Original Frontier, is um, available in pre-order on Amazon. 
I haven't done my Amazon page yet. That's one of four or five things that I've got to do that Amy, Amy, there's another Amy from the publisher. She's an editor and she ran down the list of priorities for me today. So we're looking forward to it. We think it'll become one of our reading books in our Tuesday night group. Good. I'm waiting about on two, I've, I've, 250 pages. It's pretty thorough. It's a manual for the serious Zen seeker, serious Zen practitioner. Has some do's and don'ts in there. It has some uh, workarounds for. There's a chapter based on damn your lousy excuses, all the reasons you, all the reasons you can't do meditation. You know, like I don't have time. And then those sections have try this. You know, so it's different. It's different from most of what's out there. I'm waiting on my copy because I, I did a pre-order, so I'm, I'm waiting on my copy. Uh, I'll put the link in the notes uh, to Amazon to where they can, people can order if they sure. want to get a copy sure. and say, so I'm going to help you with that all I can. Okay. Uh, I'll get an Amazon page up uh, pretty soon. That's the first priority. And it has to be up by December 31st, but I, I'm pretty sure I'll get it done by next week. You know, we appreciate you coming on as well. I know that's one way that we can support you is by buying your book. What's some other ways that we can support you? Well, you can, anybody can always make a donation to STO. If you make a, a out, just an outright donation to Silent Thunder Order, that that's, goes into an account that's available to me uh, for income. You can make a donation to ASCC. I don't. I get. I have a minister's household expense from the Atlanta Soda Zen Center, so it helps. And people can make donations direct to me, but I usually, and a lot of a lot of people do. I usually connect those to weekly Dharma dialogues. I, I have about two dozen individuals that I talk with every week, and they they send donations for that. It supports my work, but I, I'm hesitant to just ask people to send money, <laughs> money yeah, for nothing, absolutely. money for nothing, you know. <laughs> uh, but but it's it's not really money for nothing though. I mean, there's you have a wealth of knowledge that you openly share, and we appreciate that. And yeah, uh, I would well, never- if you feel if you feel so moved, please do so. But but I want you to feel uh, a value received. Yes. So um, people start anybody online uh, tonight or any other time who wants to start an individual dialogue with me, buddy. You and I started one, right? Yes. And if you if you find it useful, then you can make a contribution. But we have some young people, students, uh, people who have been hit by the unemployment. So we don't have any uh, fees that are absolutely required. Mm-hmm. We never want finances to be a hardship for anybody to engage and participate in our in our events. So it's all don, it's called dana in in Buddhism. It means donation or generosity. Some of it's deductible. Some of it's not. You just have to check with your IRS guy if you're if you if you're interested in deductibility. I thought it was interesting too. You were talking about uh, the Buddha. Uh, he had a moment of surrender when he was at. I guess it's, it was at the Bodhi tree where he said, "I'm going to stay until this either works yeah. or it doesn't." <laughs> yeah, the story is he made a vow to sit there and necessarily, if if necessary, die in the effort to solve this dilemma of suffering in the world, a basic kind of koan that we all have, we all share. Fortunately, he didn't die. He survived. And then uh, he 
he went on to, as we say, he went on, he went on to uh, teach others, and he he had some ambivalence about that. The story goes, but the most the most important point in Buddhism and Zen, in particular, is your own experience. Yeah. You are Buddha, according to Matsuoka Roshi used to say in Zen, "Who is God? You are God." Yeah. In Zen, "Who is Buddha? You are Buddha." He never said he was Buddha. <laughs> you are Buddha. Yeah. So it's up to us to try to try to penetrate to this same insight. And then for the first time, we'll understand the teachings of Buddhism from our own experience. It's a little bit like the saints in Catholicism, the ancestors all had personal experience. That's what I like about all of the teachings that I hear from the Zen. You know, I got started with the Zen Center because I was looking for someone to teach me about meditation. Yep. Meditation was the thing I was interested in. So I was meditating on my own and I, I wanted some more instructions to actually look for some retreats and things. So that's, uh, so yep. I'm glad I got hooked up with you guys, but that was well, uh, we, Buddha's first step, you know? Yep. That's where he came from. And so we, we think we claim we transmit the same kind of meditation that he would, did, mm-hmm. which is kind of an open-ended meditation. It's not a, there were, there, Buddha was not a Buddhist. There was no such thing as Buddhism, and he did not get this from his teachers any more than Christ was a Christian. Christ wasn't a Christian, so he was. They were like us, and uh, our our approach is to try to replicate in our own experience what Buddha did. And uh, we can we can do meditation on this uh, meeting as well if you want. Mm-hmm. Uh, prepare people for it, and we'll do like five or ten minutes of instructions and meditation we can do that that would be, it can, be it, it can be taught online it's a it's very simple a zen meditation is the most simple stripped down form of meditation would, would you be willing just to do five minutes of just a small meditation today sure of course if we want to let's just do that now before we start the conversation on the fourth All right day. that's okay All right well, the, f- the first thing you want to do, you don't have to sit on the floor, cross your legs or anything, but you do want to sit up straight. You don't want to lean on the back of your chair. You want to scoot forward a little, little bit so you kind of perch. And uh, it's posture, breath, and attention. That's all. It's, it's very, very simple. Just three three things. And uh, my teacher used to say when the posture, the breath, and attention all come together uh, in a unified way, that's the real zazen. Zazen is what is Japanese for Zen meditation. Za means sit. Zen means Zen. So Zazen is sitting in Zen. So you want to sit up straight. You want to arch the small of your back and pull back on your chin so that your back is shaped kind of like an S-curve or a cobra rising off the floor. It's kind of a rigorous posture. It's not slumping. And pulling back on the chin, you feel the stretching at the back of your neck. So it's as if you have a fist at the base of your neck, a fist at the base of your spine, The fist at the bottom is pushing down, forward and down, arching the small of your back. And the fist at the top is pulling up toward the ceilings as if you're stretching your spine like a rope. At the bottom of your spine, you should push forward and down so hard that it causes a little discomfort or even a little bit of pain there. Uh, um, Buddy, your chin is a little bit too far out. Pull it back in a little bit so your face is just slightly downcast. You feel that stretching at the back. Yes. And it takes time, but eventually that's, you'll feel that stretch and it'll become very solid all the way down your back. Okay. And then uh, our eyes are open, half open is ideal, looking toward the floor, 30, 45 degrees. 
not wide open and not closed. It's okay in the beginning if you want to close your eyes and kind of like do your posture checkpoint. But eventually you want to open your eyes and engage the sense of vision as well as hearing and all the other senses. So when we place our hands in this kind of shape that's called a cosmic mudra, one hand on top of the other, where the fingers overlap, the middle knuckle overlaps, and the fingers nest in the palm of the bottom hand. Then the thumbs are touched lightly at the tip and dropped in against the lower abdomen where the wrists nest on the, on the hips, on the thighs. And there should be no strain on the arms or shoulders, so you want to lift and drop your shoulders a few times of their own weight. Do like a shoulder roll and flap your elbows out to the side. Make sure all the physical effort is in the base of the spine and the base of the neck. So the physical effort is running through your spine. In the beginning, we usually recommend rocking left and right, forward and back. And what you're trying to do is find the sweet spot right in the middle of the posture where you come into balance with gravity. Uh, you won't notice necessarily notice this right away, so we don't build expectations. But eventually, you'll find that absolute center or sweet spot of, the, of posture where everything is so aligned with gravity, you come into equilibrium, kind of like equipoise. You feel it may feel like you're floating. So it's exactly centered. Somebody said it's like the mast on a ship and the sails are like the body tissue hanging all around the sail, the mast. Mm -hmm. So then uh, the chin pulled back in, the nose comes in line with the navel, the ears in line with the shoulders. Gaze is dropped again to the floor. So it's very centered and balanced posture, physical samadhi, you might say. Samadhi means balance or posture. Then breathing deeply, we inhale through the nose, uh, a very deep breath, full cycle, so that the stomach sticks out like a balloon filling with air. So this is not good posture in the Western sense or military sense, but the stomach expands with air when you inhale, and the air seems to touch bottom behind our hands. Very full and deep breath. Usually we palpitate. We breathe in the upper part of the lungs. So in this case, you want to start breathing as deeply as you can without without overstraining. Then the exhalation is long and slow, a gradual exhalation, breath of air, squeezing the air out and, and until the air is all gone. Then the next breath rushes in of its own accord. So in this breathing, the diaphragm muscle stretches with the inhalation, and then it collapses downward with the exhalation. So the movement on the diaphragm muscle is very central to your nervous system. It's very calming. It's called abdominal breathing. But uh, it stretches the diaphragm muscle and collapses the diaphragm muscle, which is highly connected to your nervous system. If you feel fear or cold, usually it clenches right there in your stomach. So that's called hara in Japanese, H-A-R-A. -A. Hara is the stomach region, that stomach power. So with each breath, it's as if we're fanning a fire there with a the bellows growing out of the middle of the stomach. Directly in the center of the stomach, a couple inches in and down from the belly button, there's a point called the tanden. It means something like sea of elixir. It's uh, visualized as a point right in the middle. If you get up and walk, it's the point that a long distance runner keeps level so there's no wasted up and down motion. Point around which a ballerina moves, pivots and the point from which a martial artist directs the key or life force. So it's, it's, that's where the breath is going. The breath is going into the pit of the stomach. And like a bellows flaming, fanning a fire, it seems to get hotter and hotter. The energy that develops there burns through the whole body, burns out all the physical resistance that we have. 
But again, these are things that may not happen right away, happen over time. So eventually the breath and the posture come together in a unified way. In the beginning, they may seem to work against each other. But my teacher said it's like a frog sitting, sitting on a lily pad as if the breath is coming in and out of the pores of the skin by osmosis. The whole body is pulsing with the breath. So eventually, body posture and breath become one thing. You may count the breath, if you like, simple way of counting, like one for the inhalation, two for the exhalation, or count one for a full cycle, and then two for the next cycle, three for the next cycle, and so on. And avoid counting beyond 10. It gets to be too complicated. You could stop at four and start over at one, that kind of thing. More like music notation than counting something up. And the counting only acts to focus the attention on the breath. So when you find your mind wandering, going off on a tangent, just have bring it back to the body posture and the breath. And you just keep pulling it back like that, like working a muscle. After a while, it becomes very, very, very strong. And the mind tends not to wander so much. <clears throat> but we don't try to suppress thought. We allow thought to come and go. Uh, we call it monkey mind. The monkey is not uh, happy sitting facing a wall as we do. And so uh, we have a lot of thoughts come up in meditation. Just let them come, pay attention to them, notice what they're about. And then if you can, let them go. You know, when you find yourself running off on a tangent, getting involved in thinking, 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 just bring your attention back to the breath and the posture. And eventually you'll bring your attention back to seeing, hearing, feeling all the sensations and they start taking the power away from the thinking mind by, by dividing your attention into more than one area. So don't fight with the monkey mind. It'll turn into a 600 pound gorilla and you'll lose that battle. If you do just let it go uh, like a kitten or a puppy dog, it'll finally run its tether out and lie down and take a nap. That's called cheetah. Cheetah is uh, the Sanskrit word. Interestingly, Tarzan's, Ape companion, chimpanzee was called cheetah, so it's easy to remember. Bodhi is called wisdom mind. The other half of the mind, Bodhi cheetah, are considered to be the two, two sides of the mind. Bodhi is more like intuition or wisdom. And eventually, uh, we've been trained to focus too much on thinking mind. You get the good grades in school, get the good jobs. So it's kind of taken over. It's like the 600-pound gorilla. But eventually, as I said, it will take a break and Bodhi mind can reassert itself. So you come into a better balance mentally. So Zen meditation is about balance, centeredness, physical, physically, mentally and emotionally. Mind and body cannot separate. So along with physical centeredness comes uh, more mental centeredness, more clarity, less confusion. emotional. Uh, uh, calm, less anxiety, just by sitting still. And then um, eventually social, social samadhi, you could say, better, less conflict in relationships and so forth, come about as a long-term uh, uh, side effect of this practice. So mostly we practice patience with ourselves on the cushion when we're sitting, uh, patience with the monkey mind, patience with our own inability to, to grasp this or what this is about. And the more patient you become with yourself, the more patient you're able to be with others. So let's just try this for about five minutes. Buddy, do you have a, a gong or something you'd like to ring? Or 
I can just clap my, my hands. If, if you would, please. Yeah, I'll just clap my hands, and then in five minutes, I'll clap them again, and, and then we'll we'll stop. So just do your best. Go through your posture checkpoints. Breathe deeply. Let your mind open up and expand to embrace everything in your attention. So we typically bow at the end of a sitting session and there's a lot of, you know, sort of protocols. But that five minutes may seem like a long time to you or it may seem very short. Because one thing that happens is we enter into real time. Somebody said the barriers of time and space fall away in, in Zazen. It's, and and it, it, it varies. Sometimes uh, you can work your way up to 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. A typical period is 40, 40 minutes. So there'd be 40 minutes of sitting, 10 minutes of walking, meditation, 40 minutes of sitting. That's nine, 90 minutes. That's pretty standard. Our, our Sunday morning sits are 25 minutes with five minutes of walking in between. And newcomers, typically, we sit only about 15 minutes. But they're, everybody's typically sitting there while we're talking. So it ends up being a lot more than just the 15 minutes. So it's the kind of thing you want to raise your own bar on. You want to approach it. should be the comfortable way. Uh, but the more you do it, the more you sort of like to do it, as long as you don't develop funny ideas about it, <laughs> which we all do. Yeah. Anyway, any questions about that, I'm happy to answer. Do you all have anything? It's a, it's a good way to start the meeting. And we didn't, we, I personally didn't think online meditation would work, but it does. Because you get support from the other people who are doing it with you. And I, I will have notes, which I've put in some of the other episodes, to your online teaching on meditation as well, Sensei. I'll have that. We have, we have quite a few opportunities for you to join meditations, including mm -hmm. upcoming uh, Friday. And Friday, we're sitting all, up all night. It's in, in uh, recognition of Buddha's birthday. Buddha's uh, Enlightenment Day, where he sat up all night and saw the morning star and was awakened, that kind of thing. So we sit up all night over Friday night. And the closest to December 8th, whatever day we can find it, everybody can do it. It's being hosted out of Falmouth, Massachusetts, who we're joining here, too. We have about 15 affiliate centers around the country and in Canada. And the wonderful thing about the online is we, can, we all get together, even though we're in different time zones. That's happening much more now than prior to uh, COVID yep. as well, too, right? Yep, and we're going to continue doing it. We're not going to we're not going to go back to just in person because it you can really have a better sense of the sangha community online actually than everybody doing their own thing wherever they are. That's one of the many gifts that I think we're going to see out of COVID. Yep, yep. Hmm. It's changing things in ways we don't even understand yet. That's an understatement. <laughs> As with everything, right? <laughs> Not just COVID. <laughs> uh, the fourth verse. Um, I think we'll read it out of Wayne Dyer. Do you have Dyer open, Marla? 
The Tao is empty but inexhaustible, bottomless, the ancestor of it all. Within it, the sharp edges become smooth, the twisted knots loosen, the sun is softened by a cloud, the dust settles into place. It is hidden but always present. I do not know who gave birth to it. It seems to be the common ancestor of all, the father of things. Mm. Um, I think it's it's instructive to actually... uh, One thing that we do here is um, we will read aloud one translation of something we're studying while the others are looking at a different translation. So let's try that. Does everybody have that copy she just read? I believe so. Okay. Yes. Okay. If you can, if you can look at this copy out of, uh, out of the dire book, just read that silently to yourself and then listen to this. So are we ready? Yes, sir. The Tao is empty, or it says Tao is empty, not the Tao. Tao is empty, yet it fills every vessel with endless supply. Tao is hidden, yet it shines in every corner of the universe. With it, the sharp edges become smooth. The twisted knots loosen. The sun is softened by a cloud. The dust settles into place. So deep, so pure so still. It has been this way forever. You may ask, whose child is it? But I cannot say. This child was here before the great ancestor. So you see the slight difference? The middle verse is exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder why the translator chose different terms. But we find that reading this way because we're not all going to learn ancient Chinese or Japanese, you kind of get to read between the lines. You kind of hear, you know, hear multiple uh, takes or versions on it. So you get a little broader idea, I think. So first I'd like to make just a couple comments. This reminds me of some of the Chinese poetry in Zen where it says, um, Although it is not constructed, it is not beyond words. Like facing a precious mirror, form and reflection behold each other. You are not it, but in truth it is you. Like a newborn child, it is fully endowed with five aspects, so forth. So this child, um, the Tao is empty, um, yet it is the source of all things and so forth, is pointing at what is sometimes called the ineffable. In Japanese, there's a word enmo, I-N-M-O, which means that or thus. In uh, Sanskrit, it's tatha. The, one of the honorific terms given to Buddha was tathagata, meaning he, he who uh, apprehends suchness or thusness. So thusness, suchness, all these words are attempts to point out something. And interestingly, Toth, Toth, Toth is very much like that in English, you know, very similar construction in, in letters. So there's something that all of this is trying to point at, 
which is in all in Taoism as well as uh, Buddhism is considered to be beyond words. But it's although it is not constructed, it is not beyond words entirely. We can point at it. Uh, by not constructed, they mean it's not a it's not a concept that we made up. It's the reality. And uh, in Zen, we think the way we re- apprehend that reality is the same way Buddha did. We sit down, shut up, <laughs> right? Pay attention, <laughs> sit still, still enough, long enough, push the envelope of our own consciousness. We. In Zen or Buddhism, it's felt that we all have this same potential to break through to this kind of insight. And, but but what it's it cannot be named. It cannot be you know you can throw any labels you want at it. They're not going to stick. So it's getting at something very difficult and yet very simple. So here the first question. Well, yes, inexhaustible nothing. That seems like a no brainer. So what's the big deal? How can I sense and feel nothing? So, um, Matsuoka Roshi used to say, there is nothing, but in this nothing, there is everything. There are infinite things. So this, this is setting up uh, form and emptiness, was the formula that uh, Buddha used. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. So form is what we experience. It, sometimes the word appearance is used instead. So... What appears to be in Zen is true, is real. This laptop is real. If I bang my head on it, it's going to bruise my head and so forth. It's not, you can't deny its reality. And remember in India, China of these times, they didn't have modern physics. So they didn't have this evidence that matter is, is composed of particles and atoms. And when you get down to it, the atoms fall apart and become energy. And so matter is energy, basically. And Einstein's E equals MC squared uh, quantifies it. And then the atomic bomb proved it, right? So, but these ancients didn't have the benefit of that kind of science. Their science was all intuitive and, and analytical. They analyzed nature and saw how things work. And they applied them to as general principles. So this so-called nothing is set up in opposition to something. But it's more like energy is set up in opposition to matter, even though they're not really in opposition. Matter is impounded energy. right? Energy can be radiant where you, you couldn't call it matter. So energy is the bigger idea. Matter is subsumed under that as a, as a, as a subset of energy. Emptiness is the bigger idea. Emptiness is dynamic change, impermanence, insubstantiality. The fact that this laptop sitting in front of me uh, has only been in this configuration for a couple of years. You know, this is a pretty new laptop. The one that broke down was 2012. So it was eight years ago. And it was all it was disintegrating and falling apart on its own. Everything does, right? So we know that, but we have the we have the uh, fortune of having science sort of back that up and help us understand that in a way that we say, okay, I get that. That's that. I, I see that. They didn't have that in those days. So they came through these judgment calls on a very intuitive basis. Uh, 
everything is as it is is real but because it is impermanent and ever changing in that sense it is not real in the permanent sense it's not forever going to be a laptop it didn't used to be a laptop it used to be all these you know silicon and aluminum and plastic and whatever it was that through our genius through the genius of the analytical mind when we when we talk about the overweening analytical mind being dominant we don't discount its power i mean we control the degree that we control the world is essentially through analysis although intuition does play a role in higher science just as it does in art and music and, and so forth. So uh, we can understand that, that everything is arising out of this so-called nothingness of space or em empty space. And scientists are telling us now space is not really empty. It's full of energy. It's even full of black energy and black matter that we can't see. Dark matter, dark energy, right? So it's not so simple as... As, as our perception will tell us, and this is a Zen principle, we, we don't trust, in a sense, our own senses. We said in Zazen, we're studying seeing, we're, we're studying hearing, we're studying feeling. Objectively, like a scientist looking at something. So sense and feel nothing. What happens in Zazen, uh, sitting still enough, long enough, you go through several stages. And they're pretty common. So uh, we don't think of uh, the process itself as step by step. But in order to talk about it, you have to, like anything else, you have to break it down into digestible bites. So in the beginning, things start to get kind of hyper real and painful. Uh, your body hurts. Your leg hurts. Your back hurts. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're being driven crazy by monkey mind. You have all these things you have to take care of. And you're sitting here facing a stupid wall. <laughs> <laughs> you're wasting time, you know, all of that stuff comes into play. So um, it's not that you you can sense and feel nothing right away, but what happens is just as you adapt to the weight of your clothes, you don't feel the weight of your clothes, right? Now that I mention it, you probably feel it again. You can shift around, ah, I kind of feel that. But before I said anything, you didn't feel it. You had adapted sensory adaptation. The brain seems to work on a need-to-know basis. So if some stimulus information input coming into it is repetitious and constant, like your heartbeat or like your breathing, the brain just shuts, the, flips the switch. It doesn't need to know that unless you start having a heart attack and your heart stops beating or unless you start suffocating. Then we need to know this big time, right? But until then, we don't. So if you recognize that what happens in Zazen is a natural process. We're, we're following the natural posture, finding the natural posture, the natural breath, the natural frame of mind. Then naturally, you're going to go through sensory adaptation. You're going to get to the point where your butt doesn't hurt anymore. It turns numb. Your knees don't hurt anymore. They turn numb. So if you apply that principle to everything, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and even thinking, after a while, you adapt to the whole thing. So it merges. It becomes like one thing, being, existence, if you will. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it has become nothing in the sense of nothing special. It's what is always happening all the time anyway. Meditation cannot reveal anything that isn't already true. Mm 
So what it does is helps us get past our own interpretation and our own ignorance and our own beliefs and so forth, and just have a direct experience of what it means to exist, to be. Very much like your mind when you were three or four years old as a child. You were fully conscious. Uh, this same poem says, uh, like a newborn child, fully endowed with five aspects. The five aspects are form, feeling, thought, impulse, consciousness, the five skandhas. A child has all of that, but a child doesn't have the language, hasn't learned the language yet, hasn't been taught the concepts that we have in science and, and so forth, and society. So a child, we're kind of regressing to a childlike state of mind to kind of refresh and reboot our experience of our own consciousness. So um, it's, it's a little hard to defend on some intellectual level. It's kind of a primitive thing we're doing. And, and, but a child, a child can be sitting there just sort of ding-dong, happy, blissfully unaware or aware, but if you ask them what they're doing, they have no idea, right? So I think that's the kind of nothing that we're talking about. It's the nothing that is at the heart of being everything. You know, you, Buddha used the metaphor of an onion. He said, you give a monkey an onion, what does a monkey do? He peels, peels it away, right? Looking inside the onion, trying to find out what's inside the onion. He gets down to the, where it falls apart in the middle, and there's nothing there. <laughs> but the, in the process, meanwhile, there's been a lot of tears. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's good. Huh. That's real good. Um. So anything else on that one? I don't think I don't have anything to you guys on the first question. No, no, I, I can relate to what you're talking about with the, the kids. Um, my son's the exact same. You ask him what he's doing. He's, he's that absorbed in what he's doing, but it's just something that he does. And it, it, it's what you said. It, it's nothing. I'm not yep. doing anything that I'm, I'm just I'm just doing. Um, I'm trying to get him to switch to say I'm, I'm just being. You know, being. yeah, it's I, I, I just am. Um, yep. it's, it's like when you say, why is, why is your bedroom a mess?" He says, "Well, just because it is." <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Children know it's just they get taught, they get weaned away from that by the pressures of going to school, getting good grades, and you start putting that all aside. But that's why the line in the poem says, uh, "Um, like a." Like a newborn child, fully endowed with five aspects, this goes on to say, you are not it, but in truth, it is you. And so this idea that we're doing all this, that we control all this, we control our breath, we control blah, 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 and so on. We begin to find out that's not really true. Uh, the body is controlling the breathing. The body will do the dying. We don't have a lot to say about it. But meanwhile, it is being us, right? It, whatever it is, is being us. And it's a great relief to come to this perspective because it takes a lot of the burden off of you. We, in Zen, we think we're, we're not responsible for everything. That would be God or something. But we're responsible for what we do with it. We're responsible for what we do with this life. We can't take responsibility for being here, although... In Buddhism, there is this idea that you wouldn't be here if you didn't want to be. So it is, is a kind of desire that brings you into birth, according to Buddhism. And because we're conscious, because we're fully conscious or capable of being fully awake, 
we're actually more responsible than, say, a chicken, cat, dog, or cow, right? They're also, in a sense, responsible for their own life, but they don't have the same level of consciousness that we have, so we have even more responsibility for what we do with our life. Thank you. Thank you. But a child, you know, you can't, it's not childish. It's not childish. It's childlike. Mm -hmm. So rounding off sharp edges, one of my teachers is Barbara, Sarene Barbara Cohn of the Suzuki lineage, uh, Shenry Suzuki. And uh, I spent the summer of 2007 in Austin, Texas with her at the Austin Zen Center. Three months, three months. It's called an ongo practice period. It comes from the rainy season in India. When the, when the uh, monsoons come, it lasts for like three months. So the monks would go into the caves during that time. And that was their so-called practice period. So that's, that's a tradition that's been carried down to present day. And some of the uh, prerequisites or requirements that you go through to become uh, recognized as a Zen priest include those kind of practice periods, angles. So I was there on Ango, and she said, uh, and it was kind of a horrible experience. I wasn't happy to not be able to be here and doing what I needed to do here. But uh, it was also that it was like a snake pit. You know, the, the, the residents, there were quite a few residents there. And there was another leader who was a psychologist, and there was a large community but there was a lot of backbiting and backstabbing and just, you know, human nature, all the stuff you expect. So uh, I was talking with Barbara about that. And, and she was saying, well, you know, Sangha practice, community practice is like uh, <clears throat> we, we rub the rough edges off of each other. You know, we're like stones tumbling in a stream. And after a while, uh, all the stones become nice and smooth and round. So that's what social practice is considered to be in, in Zen. You you get into a residential situation. We have six residents here in Atlanta. Pretty smooth, by the way. We've had some we've had some really problematic residents over time. Uh, and if somebody's really disrupting the community, you have to take it up with them, and you can't you can't allow that to go on. And so we've had to ask people to leave for those reasons. They just could not accommodate. They just could not adjust. But her point, I think, was well taken. Roughing off the sharp edges means I can get along with you. That's what I meant by social samadhi. You know, I'm okay by myself. I don't need this relationship. I don't need to get something from you in this relationship. And so I have something to offer this relationship. I don't simply have need for this relationship. <laughs> so some of the rough edges have been rubbed off of me, if that's the case. And then you can enter into relationships where they're, they're more balanced. Right. Mm -hmm. And the other person might learn from you that they don't need, they don't need this relationship with you either. They're okay by themselves. So it applies to basically to all relationships, but particularly communal situations where you didn't choose your roommate. You know, <laughs> you didn't decide to live with this person. You get stuck in there with them. Yeah. So I think that's what it means by rubbing off the sharp edges. But you can take that same principle and apply it to everything. Your job, mm -hmm. the house you live in. You hate the house you live in. My house keeps falling down. I have to keep propping it up, right? Or like uh, Jimmy Stewart when he was – the thing on the banister kept coming off, you know. <laughs> the, 
miracle on 34th Street. Mm-hmm. You get into these situations where you hate your job, you hate this, you hate that. You don't have enough money, you don't have this, you don't have that. It also means all of that. Those are sharp edges. Also, too, I think that can relate to recovery because oh yeah, uh, because in recovery we have people we mix with people we normally would not mix with. Yeah, <laughs> and the only thing we have in common is that we used to, we drank too much and we want to be sober. Yeah. So uh, we have to. I, I get the rough edges rubbed off all yep. of the time. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Thank you. Anything else on that one? Anything, guys? Okay. How about number three? Because I'd like to finish up close to five. Dan uses the word God here. I'm just looking to see. The great ancestor is what it's called in one case. That sounds like a Native American term almost. It does. does. And then the common ancestor of all, the father of things. I do not know who gave birth to it and so on. Um, so the word God would not be used in a Buddhist context or probably in a Taoist context. God's meant something totally different in China at that time. So the common ancestor would be, um, even before Adam and Eve, you know, our, our creation myth is Adam and Eve, the Christian creation myth and so forth. But, um, it is hidden but always present. I do not know who gave birth to it. So it will be a little bit, that's a little bit getting into first causes, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Christianity, Catholicism, all the major religions other than Buddhism have a creation myth and mm-hmm. first cause and some primitive Buddhism, Hinduism, proto, proto Hinduism, the, the segue from Vedic to Hindu to, to, to Buddhist, you'd probably find some uh, such uh, metaphors. In fact, if you were born into the earth with no family, no nothing, you'd have to make it up. You'd have to figure this out and make up a myth. But um, a monotheist, I don't know how a monotheist could be okay with it. Uh, in, our, in our perspective, I think if God is anything, God is everything. The difference we would have with theistic religions would be that, well, wait a minute. If God is what you say God is, then God is a head upon a head. That's an old Zen saying for something extraneous or extra. Mm -hmm. So the word God is unnecessary then because then, you know, God just represents the totality, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think what is spoken of in Buddhism and Taoism is more like that. It's more like we don't know how this started. You know, the scientists have their big bang. And as the Dalai Lama says, well, what came before that? And the scientists say there was no before before that. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so it gets into this endless sort of cycle. Um, so I think that that's something we would have to discuss the whole idea of God first before we could come to some sort of uh, consensus or terms terminology where we could explain what they're actually trying to say here. One, one of the expressions from Taoism that I like that may address this is um, says something like caught by desire. We see only the manifestations freed from desire. We confront the mystery. Mm-hmm. So the mystery would be a word for this, where 
the answer in Taoism to our to our most uh, deepest question, as in Buddhism, is a deeper question, and it it we it doesn't it not only doesn't help to try to to try to uh, answer that, uh, but only to nurture that question. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. called great doubt in Zen in, in Zen Buddhism. Great doubt. It means you have doubts about a lot of things, right? And uh, people say doubt is the opposite of faith. Like a person has a crisis of doubt in Christianity, but that's not true in Buddhism. Doubt is the emotional content of faith. Doubt is how faith feels. The more doubt doubt you are feeling, even about Buddhist teachings and about your path and so forth, yourself and everything about you, uh, the more faith you have to exercise to keep going. Just as courage is not the absence of fear, but the ability to act with a high threshold of fear, still do what has to be done. So faith and doubt are tied together that way in Buddhism, but that's not typically the theistic view of it. Faith means you don't have any doubt in this in your beliefs, typically. Blind faith. Hmm. So thinking of it as when you, when you feel doubt and you continue anyway, eventually that doubt expands to embrace and include everything. So the whole universe becomes one big question mark. You don't know. And the don't know mind is highly revered in Zen. Isn't that it's the original the, mind? Isn't that the goal? Is to just be with be with the question instead of having to have an answer for it? Every day is a happy day. My teacher used to say is the goal. Every day is a good day. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and people ask me what would I add to that, and I said regardless. <laughs> regardless, yes, that's acceptance. You know, that's acceptance. Marla, did you have a question? I heard. I saw you unmute. No, no. You know, I just said this. I just whenever I read this verse, it just reminds me of the how the the universe works, the galaxies, and um, you know they're constantly changing and yep. Yep. bursting and creating new stars and new whatever. And I think that's kind of what this is. That's it's what called, how this verse read to me. It's called dukkha in classical Buddhism, and it's usually interpreted as suffering. But it's really just change. Galaxies colliding is dukkha. Mm-hmm. When we human beings get caught up in it, then we take it emotionally. We take it personally. We don't like it. And so we we, we consider it suffering. We change. But it's just change. Just. It's, a, it's a universal principle. Mm. Yeah. It's not a respecter of persons. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one constant, and that's change, right? (laughs) Now, uh, I've taken this to another level, which we can talk about next time in our meditation, and it's modeling the six senses around the fact that there are six, and they they can be spelled with six letters, and dukkha is spelled with six letters, and change is spelled with six letters. So I'm thinking of it as the, you know, sixes and senses instead of sixes and sevens, which is a symbol of confusion, sixes and senses that everything that we experience when we're sitting in meditation and we sit more and more still, we, we begin to realize this. Everything that we experience is change. Any sound you hear is the sound of change. If there were no change, there would be no sound. Everything you see is the product of change. If there were no change, you wouldn't see anything. Everything you feel 
is the product of change. It's something changing. If it's just your stomach gurgling. So everything, in other words, you can say that everything that we're experiencing in Zazen is not nothing, but it's change. Mm. 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 That's good. That's good. Thank you, Sensei. And, Thank and you. really at all times, not, not just when we're sitting still. It just becomes magnified when we sit still. And I want to make that point, too, because people misunderstand that Zen meditation practice is something additional and extra added on. It's really just what we're already doing. Everybody's doing Zen, whether they know it or not. They just may not be doing a very good job of it. They may not have the, they may not have the tradition that we have, right, uh -huh. who has refined it over 2,500 years. So when you do Zazen, I think of it as like a magnifying glass or a, uh, a prism or a, or a laser beam or a microscope. All we're doing is focusing more tightly on the same thing. But we're doing it in such a way that it's magnified. Mm. If you think of it that way, it's easier to get yourself to do it. <laughs> That's good. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Any other comments on this fourth verse? Guys, y'all have anything? It was a good one. That, that good. is a good verse. They all are. They all are good verses. I learned something each time I read them. Well, we're thank going you, to Sensei. Sensei. Thank you, sir. Hey, be well. And I'll everyone to have a great week, and we will see you next week. Right, stay you. safe. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.